Remain standing for our sermon text from Romans 4. I'm only going to read the first five verses, not the first eight, as it says in the bulletin. And today we're going to reach back and consider one of the most foundational and earliest truths in Scripture from Romans 4, starting in verse 1. Listen to God's Word. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, bless the hearing, the preaching of your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight on this Lord's day. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. An inspirational speaker once told a story of a frog who fell into a pail of milk. The frog was unable to hop out because there was nothing solid for his legs to push against. All he could do was paddle and stay afloat. And that's what he did. He, pa- he, he was paddling and he kept paddling and paddling. Eventually, before he knew it, his paddling had churned some of the milk into butter. And now he had a solid pad from which to launch himself to freedom. The moral of the story, of course, is that if you keep paddling, if you keep churning, if you keep working, if you keep doing your best, you'll eventually make a way for yourself. You'll launch yourself into freedom. Well, that's the American way. And there's a grain of moral truth in this, of course, but it's a very poor illustration of how the gospel works. As 21st century Christians, Reformed Christians at that, living in America, we enter into Romans 4 with some baggage that Paul addresses head on. Our hang-ups, you see, are not altogether different from the hang-ups of those Paul was writing to originally. We prize hard work, and we like to work for what we get. We would rather be givers than receivers. We pride ourselves in being part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. We're self-sufficient, and we find our worth in our work and in our contributions and what we achieve and accomplish, what we do As religious folk, there's another layer to this, we've worked hard getting our spiritual and theological theological ducks in order. 
The Jews in Rome, see Paul is writing this to churches in Rome that were made up of Jews and Gentiles. Remember from our previous sermons, the Jews had started these churches. They came back from Pentecost most likely and planted churches after having heard the gospel from Peter and the other apostles. But then by the time Paul writes this, two and a half decades later, the churches are Gentiles and Jews, probably more Gentiles. And the Jews in Rome were sore tempted to have a superiority complex. That was, they were happy to welcome Gentiles into this new Christian movement, the church. But the Jews believed down deep that the Gentiles needed a bit more grace than they did, than the Jews did. The Jewish Christians just sort of belonged in the household of God. They'd been God's people for centuries. They were the chosen ones, the, the holy nation. They figured that God was particularly pleased with their faithfulness, their pedigree, their theological heritage, their long-standing religious and spiritual culture. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, were, were a mess, typically, oftentimes. Most of them were coming out of paganism. They were still trying to figure out what holiness and faithfulness was supposed to look like as members of the people of God. They were still working out the Jewish understanding of God's oneness, a concept that the Jews had been meditating on for centuries, even millennia. The spirituality of the Gentiles lacked the richness and the rootedness that existed among the believing Jews. Most Gentile Christians were first-generation believers, so they lacked the fruit of generational faithfulness, a wonderful fruit indeed. Unlike the Jews, the Gentiles had not been reading the Bible for centuries or even millennia. So the Jews, even Christian Jews, had the sense that their works contained intrinsic worth before the Lord. They believed that they found favor in God's sight to some extent or another on the basis of their ethnicity and their good works. But Paul, here in Romans 4, isn't just talking to proud Jews who believe that, the, that their works can merit favor with God. He's also talking to Gentiles, even the Gentiles in this church, but Gentiles like us who find ways to boast in, in our work and what we do in our spiritual maturity, in our theological astuteness, in our religious fervor, in our keen insights into Scripture, in our diligent labor for the Lord. There's nothing new about this prob problem of thinking too highly of ourselves and our works. It's endemic to human nature, to humanity. It has plagued religious people since time immemorial. Part of the problem is that unearned favor doesn't compute with us. That doesn't make sense to, you know, to us. Salvation by works makes more sense to us. Paul knows this. He had to deal with it himself in his own life. He continues to beat the drum, therefore, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any works. And one of the reasons that this was a particular struggle for the people of God, for the Jews of Paul's day, is that even some of the religious literature encouraged them to think that God's favor toward them was based in some way on what they did and who they were. And to them, Abraham, the forefather of the people of, of the Jews, 
was a, to them, he was a prime example of a Jewish forefather who had been declared righteous before God by works. For example, the book of Jubilees, which was written a century or so before Christ, says that Abraham was perfect in all his deeds and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. You kind of wonder if they had really paid attention to the book of Genesis. Another Jewish work called the Prayer of Manasseh at about the same time says that righteous people like Abraham, and he's the prime example, never have to repent. Abraham didn't have to repent. This was... This was the religious and theological environment that Jesus and Paul were born into. Abraham was considered to be a perfect law keeper who had no need of repentance. In other words, according to Jewish thought, at least some Jewish thought, Abraham was declared righteous by works. And Paul is about to combat this error head on. No one, not even Abraham, not even the hero of the faith, was saved by works. Going all the way back to Adam, before Abraham, a person can only find favor with God through faith, by believing God. Salvation was by faith alone for Abraham, just as it is by faith alone for you. Now, before we look at Paul's argument against salvation by works in Romans 4, we need to be aware of an important background verse in Genesis 18. When the, remember, when the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, Abraham said to the Lord, said to God in Genesis 18, 3, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. If I have found favor in your sight, that's the key phrase. There's nothing more important than finding favor with God. Finding favor with God is the crucial thing for every human being. From Adam, the first human, to the last human to be born on earth. This was the case for Abraham and Noah and Methuselah and Adam. And it's the case for you. The central question you have to answer is whether you have found favor in God's sight. Have you? Have you found favor in God's sight? Has he accepted you? There are two types of people, those who are accepted by God and those who are not. Do you have eternal life? Now, those who don't find favor with God go to hell. Those who do find favor with God go to heaven. Those are the two categories. Earlier in Genesis, before the, before the flood, Noah and his family found favor. They were the only ones who found favor in the eyes of the Lord on the earth. And now Abraham says in Genesis 18, if I have found favor in your sight. Now everyone in Paul's day, fast forward 2,000 years to Paul's day, everyone in Paul's day agreed that Father Abraham did find favor in God's sight, and we can agree with them. He did. But the question is how he found favor. On what basis did he have it? By what means did Abraham find favor with Yahweh, the Lord God? Was it because, of, was it because Abraham was faithful? Was he saved by his own righteous works? He, he had more good works than bad or something like that. 
Well, well, many said yes. Abraham was declared righteous by works. Paul says, no way. No one is declared righteous by works. But before he comes right out and says it that way, he invites us to explore the matter with him. You see that, how he opens with a question in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, has found, that verb, has found according to the flesh? Do you see that word? It's, it's the same word Abraham used when he said to God, if I have found favor in your sight. And so if you're taking notes, you might want to write down, jot down uh, Genesis 18.3 by that first subpoint A. That's the background to Paul's question. But now we need to tend to Paul's question. Question, what did Abraham find according to the flesh? Did he find favor with God according to the flesh? Now, according to the flesh, it's not a phrase that we use all that often, but according to the flesh means according to his own strength, by means of his own human activity, his own doing, his own accomplishing. What did Abraham find by means of human effort? Where did his works get him? Did he find favor with God according to the flesh? Of course not. There's no favor, no favor with God to be found through human effort. Zero. Abraham's works got him nowhere. When, when God saved him, Abraham had nothing to offer God. Like the rest of us, Abraham was a deeply flawed, totally depraved, profoundly sinful human with no righteousness of his own, zero righteousness of his own. He was as helpless to save himself as you are, as I am. We get a few glimpses of Abraham's wickedness, his need for salvation in the book of Genesis. Twice, Abraham spinelessly asked his wife to lie for him, to say that she was his sister because he was afraid for his life. He, he was cowardice. And he allowed a foreign king to take her into his harem. On one occasion, Abraham let his barren wife persuade him to have a child through her female slave, Hagar. You see, like you and me, Abraham had many sins to repent of, despite what the Jews thought around the time of Jesus. And all his paddling and churning and striving and working were powerless to find him one ounce of favor with God. Like you and me, Abraham was saved in spite of his sinfulness, not because of his righteousness. Abraham had no basis for boasting. The next point on your outline no basis for boasting before God. Verse 2 says, For if Abraham was declared righteous by works, he has reason to boast, but not before God. In other words, he really doesn't have a reason to boast. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. God didn't look down from heaven and see a spark of inherent goodness in Abraham. God didn't say to himself, I, I see potential in this guy. There's some, something to work with there. He's a pretty decent guy. I think I'll redeem him. No, Romans 3, 10 to 12, as we considered several sermons ago, it applies to everyone 
even Abraham. There is none righteous, Paul says in Romans 3. Not even one. There is none who understands, not even Abraham. There is none who seeks God, not even Abraham. All have turned aside, including Abraham. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Father Abraham is included in this indictment. He had nothing to offer God except his sin. There's only one, there's only going to be going to be one person in heaven who can point to his own righteousness as the reason he's there. That one person isn't Abraham or David or Moses or Paul or St. Augustine or John Bunyan or Billy Graham, or you, or me, or any other mere human. It's Jesus Christ. The rest of us have nothing whatsoever to boast about. If you're a born-again Christian, the difference between you and the people who will spend eternity in hell is not that you are a little smarter or a little more perceptive of, you know, about spiritual things or a little better, a little, little bit more savable in some kind of way. It's not that you understood truths more readily. It's not that you were a God seeker. It's not that you had a softer heart. It's not that you were more in tune with God and spiritual matters. It's not that you did anything good. It's not that you decided by your, by your own free will to believe the gospel. The Bible says that even faith in Jesus is 100% a gift from God, something that God must give you before you can have it. No, the sole difference between you and those who are still in their sins is the irresistible grace of God that drew you all the way in. The deciding factor is that God, in his mercy, decided to extend his mercy and favor even to you while you hated him. There was nothing in you that God found attractive. If you're a child of God, God has given you faith to believe in his son, then you are a recipient of grace. It's the only difference between you and the damned. You have nothing to boast about and everything to be grateful for if you are in Christ Jesus. This is true of Abraham and it's true for you. Paul uses a crucial word in verse three, very important such an important word that he uses it 11 times in Romans 4. And he uses it well over a dozen times in the whole book of Romans. Which word am I talking about? It's the word counted. Counted. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now sometimes that word gets translated credited or imputed, something like that, or reckoned. It's an accounting term, and it means to count as, to consider as, to reckon as. On judgment day, there will, again, be two types of people. On Christ's left hand will be those who never knew Jesus, and their sins will be counted against them. They'll still be on the ledger, on on the books, counted against them. They will be cast into hell where they will have to pay off their sin debt forever because they'll never pay it off. On Christ's right hand will be those who do know Jesus. 
their sins will not be counted against them because their sins were already paid for in full by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Not only will their sins not be counted against them, it's also the case, that's just part of it, their sins won't be counted against them, it's also the case that their faith in Jesus will be counted as righteousness. In other words, the perfect righteousness of Jesus will be credited to their account. So their, their, their unrighteousness is taken care of, but then positive righteousness is credited to their account. It's counted as their righteousness. It's as if they, we, were righteous. They will be with God forever. Their sins will never, ever be counted against them, and the righteousness of Christ will forever be counted as their own righteousness. Two eternal concepts there. When Paul, quoting Genesis 15, 6 in in verse 3, says that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness, he's not saying that Abraham's faith was righteous in itself and worthy of God's approval. Remember, we're not saved by the quality of our faith. And that's true for Abraham. It's not what the Old Testament scripture means that Paul quotes. Abraham's faith was far from perfect. As I said, the very next chapter in Genesis is where Abraham fails to continue to believe in God's promise with the kind of steadfast faith that he later developed. Right after God counts Abraham's faith as righteousness in Genesis 15, Abraham behaves according to the flesh, as you and I often do. In spite of having saving faith, we often act in accordance with the flesh. He, he, he was acting in his own strength. In Genesis 16, he sleeps with Hagar, his wife's slave, in a fleshly effort to help God provide the descendants that God promised to Abraham. He thought God might need a little assistance. And in the incident with Hagar in Genesis 16 is one way to answer Paul's question in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, found according to the flesh? Well, Abraham's fleshly enterprising didn't find him anything good. It didn't find him any favor with God. His fleshly pursuits found him guilty before God. So when God counted Abraham's faith, his imperfect faith, as righteousness, it definitely wasn't because of the quality or worthiness of that believing, of that faith. His faith was not the source of his righteousness. Now, quick qualifier here, of course it's true, as we saw last week, that when a person truly believes in God, when he genuinely, genuinely puts his faith in Jesus, then from that saving faith will flow obedience, fruit, righteous living, repentance, turning away from sins. You can't say that you trust Jesus while going on to live the way you were before you became a Christian with no change, with no trajectory change. Still, in spite of that qualification, the the obedience that flows from faith doesn't earn you points with God, doesn't help in that acceptance before God in any way, nor does your faith merit God's favor. Your faith isn't a form of righteousness that makes you somehow deserving of God's grace and blessing. That's That's not what's going on here. What this verse means, rather, is that God treated Abraham's faith as a stand in 
for a perfectly righteous life that Abraham lacked. He counted Abraham's faith as though it was a sinless life. God graciously counted Abraham's faith as having in itself everything Abraham needed to be right with God. Now, what, what did Abraham need technically to be right with God? To find favor with God. What, what he needed was perfect righteousness, absolute obedience, total holiness, complete devotion to God. But Abraham couldn't supply this. No one can except Jesus. Because he didn't have it. Abraham didn't have it to supply. Nevertheless, God gave it to him as a gift. God freely supplied what Abraham couldn't, and God gave it to him by means of Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith was the instrument by which Abraham received this righteousness. And this faith was faith in the coming Messiah, in Jesus, in the Christ, the coming Christ. Now, Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ, but all saving faith, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, all saving faith is faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is true whichever side of Jesus you were born on. Abraham believed in the coming Christ, and in response to this faith, God gave Abraham the saving righteousness of that coming Christ. God looked down through the corridors of time, because he sees all at once, and he saw the perfect life and atoning death of Jesus Christ, who is both God's eternal son and a descendant of Abraham. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, 2,000 years before Christ was born, God counted the future death of Christ as a payment for Abraham's sin debt. His infinite sin debt was paid by the infinitely worthy sacrifice of the future coming Christ. In addition, God credited the future righteous life of Christ to Abraham's account because he didn't have a righteous life to offer to God. By faith in Jesus, not, not, not just faith, by faith in Jesus, Abraham was treated by God as though he had kept God's law sinlessly. Now, of course, Abraham didn't have all of the, the content that we have about this coming Messiah, but he knew he was coming. All the way back in Genesis 3, the Savior was prophesied. And God had told Abraham that from his loins would come salvation for the whole world. So in just these three verses, these first three verses in Romans 4, Paul has destroyed the Jewish understanding of Abraham as someone who found favor with God by works. Paul is demolishing the Jewish notion of works righteousness. Works righteousness. And he's doing so by using the Jewish scriptures. He, he, he likes to do that. He likes to underman, undermine misunderstandings of, of the people of God by using their own scriptures to show, to expose it. In this case, Genesis 15, 6. Now, in verses 4 and 5, as we continue to walk through this paragraph, Paul's going to restate the principle by using the example of, of, of workers and their wages. Verse 4. 
Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted as grace, but as due payment. However, to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's no wage of righteousness for the worker. This is shocking and offensive to the not just to, to his audience, but to religious types who pride themselves, who pride ourselves on our faithfulness, on how we do things a little bit better than other Christians maybe in this area or that. No wonder people were accusing Paul of nullifying the law. He's telling people not to do good works, not to be workers. Or, or is he? Well, kind of, right? He's not saying that good works are problematic in themselves. In, in fact, Paul says over and over in this letter and other letters that obedience is necessary. Faithfulness is essential. You can't claim to be born again if you're not producing the fruit that is in keeping with genuine faith and repentance. What Paul's saying in verses four and five is that good works are only a problem when you think they help you find favor with God. The ones who will be declared righteous on judgment day are those who recognized that they, that they couldn't work their way to heaven. To the one who does not work but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is counted as righteousness. The faith of every believer is counted as righteousness as it was for Abraham. So the message of verses four and five, the message of verses four and five is that workers get wages, but believers get grace. Workers get wages, believers get grace. Workers get what's coming to them, which is not good news, right? Because the wages of sin, which is all we have to offer God, is what? Death, eternal death. Only believers find unearned favor with God. Now, it's, it's hard to get this truth into our bones, isn't it? We know it in our heads, but not in our hearts and in our bones sometimes. So Paul has to hammer this truth into us over and over again because we're slow to believe that God loves and accepts ungodly people. But the truth that Paul wants you to see especially in verse five, is that if you're a Christian, then you are thoroughly ungodly. All right, now God is sanctifying you, and so you are, by God's grace, producing good fruit, but you're still totally depraved. And Paul wants us to see that God loves and accepts ungodly people. You see, that's the truth. You are totally depraved, thoroughly ungodly, to use Paul's word there. You're a wicked sinner. I am too. This doesn't change when, when we're saved, right? We still sin in, in grievous ways. And yet, we're not only ungodly. At the same time, Paul says, God has declared you to be righteous. So you're 
thoroughly ungodly, and at the same time declared to be righteous before God. You're a sinner who has been declared righteous. An unrighteous person who has been declared righteous. Martin Luther coined a Latin phrase that you may have heard to describe this reality. Simul justus et peccator. Which means righteous and at the same time a sinner. Sort of a paradox. If you're a Christian, you're righteous before God. You found favor in God's sight. And you are at the same time a sinner who doesn't deserve any of God's favor. Our God is a God, the God, who declares the ungodly, the very ungodly, to be righteous by their faith in Jesus. If you're a believer, God counts your faith as though it were real righteousness. God has credited the righteousness of Jesus Christ to your account. His atoning death on the cross has paid for your infinite sin debt and his perfect obedience has earned you favor with God. Now, in these last six or eight minutes, I want us to consider the nature of this saving faith in Jesus. We've seen that faith is not the same as obedience. It produces obedience. It produces what Paul calls the obedience of faith. But it's not equivalent to obedience. Faith is receiving, resting, accepting from God. But we need to ask, we need to delve into that question, what is saving faith? What does it do? What does it look like in action? It is an activity, but what kind? Well, one of the answers to that question is that saving faith trusts in God's provision. It trusts in God's provision, which is a hard thing for us to do. It's the opposite of trusting in your own provision, which is what we find easy to do. Saving faith begins when you stop trusting your accumulated wisdom, your retirement fund, your career plans, your education, your job security, your people skills, your networking savvy, your common sense, your understanding of how the world works, your ability to navigate life and relationships. And saving faith begins when you start trusting in God's provision without having to have it all lined up and planned out. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You see, the opposite of trusting in the Lord with all your heart is leaning on your own understanding, your own wisdom, your own way of making sense of it all. Faith involves a trust transfer, as one preacher called it. A transfer of trust from creation to the creator. God's righteousness is credited credited to your account the moment your truster becomes directed at God rather than anything other than God. Verse 3 says that Abraham believed God. We could also translate it, Abraham trusted God. He entrusted himself to God. He believed that God would provide. Young people, 
Paul's message is for you as well as for your parents. This is, this is not just an adult truth. God is calling you to believe, children, that God will provide for you everything that you need for life and godliness. He's, he's calling you, children, to believe that God will give you everything that is good for you, every single thing that is good for you. The kind of belief in this truth, this promise that if you don't have it, you can know it's not good for me. He may not give you everything you want, everything you desire at at any given point, but he will not hold back anything, not one single thing, small or big, that would do you good. That's hard to believe because we think of all these things that we, you know, if I had this or that or if this were the case, that would be good. God apparently thinks otherwise. Do you believe him? Do you trust him in that? Psalm 8411 says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. Not most or some. No good thing does he withhold. Let me read the wider context of that passage because it's powerful. Psalm 84, you want to jot this down, Psalm 84 verses 11 and 12. Really the whole psalm. But 11 The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. That word favor and honor. No good good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And then then the psalmist turns to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So do you see how these concepts of favor and trust and God's provision come together in these two verses? No good thing does he withhold from those who that belong to him, who are walking with him. God doesn't hold anything back. God doesn't hold anything back. But some of us, some of you, are holding back from entrusting yourself wholly with with abandonment to God. You're not trusting God with all your heart. Because, and and here's why, it's because you're not thoroughly convinced that God has provided or that God will provide every good thing for you. You've, you've seen in your life, it appears, that you've had to make some cert, certain things happen. And that God hasn't always come through, it, it appears. In your experience, God seems to be holding back good things. God still hasn't granted you the deepest longings of your heart. He still hasn't allowed you to fulfill your greatest ambitions. He still hasn't provided the thing that you've begged him for. He seems to be withholding good things from you. He hasn't provided you a satisfying vocation or perhaps he hasn't provided you a spouse or maybe he withheld from you a happy childhood or a healthy family. It'd be easy for God to provide you a joyous life. I mean, you know exactly how he could do it. You've got a short list of things, maybe, maybe just one thing that would give you peace and happiness. A pile of money, a healthier body, more friends, a better marriage, more leisure time, a comfortable retirement. Do you spend time wondering why God hasn't provided for you as you would like? 
In your heart of hearts, do you believe God has withheld a good thing or two from you? Abraham wondered why God was withholding children from him, especially after God had promised that he was going to have many children. At one point, Abraham, his doubts led him into sin. It led him to take matters into his own hands. Since God wasn't providing the good thing, Abraham figured he needed to help God by having a child through Hagar. He thought maybe God's holding back. And his faith led him into his faithlessness led him into sin. What good thing is God withholding from you? Something may have just come to mind, right? Do you have a mental list of things he hasn't provided? Or do you believe, as Abraham did, at least in that moment in Genesis 15, 6, a a faith that he grew into later and, and developed and matured in, do you believe, as Abraham did, that everything good for you has already been given to you in this moment and that everything good for you will continue to be given to you until you die? Do you believe that? Jesus says, Do not fear, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. Believe God, little flock. Trust God, little flock. God has gladly given you his kingdom. And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, graciously gives you all things in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are a sun and a shield for us. You bestow favor and honor. And we confess that you withhold no good thing from those who walk with you. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you, who entrusts himself to you wholeheartedly. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sins will not ever be counted against him. Blessed is the person who has had your righteousness credited to his account. Oh God, may everyone here believe you and be saved. May we all find favor with you by faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen.